Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Ah! A Helpful Hand in History. Today, we return to the Soviet Union and ask how the Bolsheviks stayed in power after the revolution. This period is often referred to as the Bolshevik Consolidation of Power, hence the title of this podcast. I really hope I can sum up this complicated period of time in a January 1918 Constituent Assembly size bite. And hopefully, in our case, we don't get shut down and shot. Hopefully. It's the morning of the 26th of October 1917. The previous day has seen the provisional government ousted from power in Petrograd, replaced by Bolshevik forces. However, the revolution is far from over. They may have taken the nation's capital, but Russia is a vast country, and forces loyal to the provisional government remained in cities like Moscow. Lenin, the Bolshevik leader, immediately had to set about governing. This podcast will look at the six major problems that Lenin and his party faced in the early months of his government, how they were dealt with, and ultimately, how successful were their responses. Problem 1. How do we rule again? In 1917, ruling a country wasn't a safe position to have, especially in Russia. In February, the Tsar had been forced from power. In May, the relatively conservative cadets were removed from power, replaced by the socialist revolutionaries. In August, Kerensky was nearly toppled by a counter-revolutionary coup headed by General Kornilov, and Kerensky's government was ultimately toppled by the Bolsheviks in October. What's to say this cycle of leaders doesn't kick off again? They weren't expected to last. Ikraeli Sereteli, or Sereteli, or... Seratili. I don't really know how to pronounce that. I think I'm going to go with Seratili. Anyway, Seratili was a prominent figure among socialist revolutionaries, and he stated that the Bolsheviks, and I quote, only will last three weeks. But Lenin wasn't going to let that happen. Initially, the Bolsheviks were dealt a good hand when, at the Second Congress of the Soviets, which occurred simultaneously to the revolution, the socialist revolutionaries, who were more conservatives, or they were referred to as right SRs, walked out of the Congress along with their Menshevik allies. This allowed the Bolsheviks to set about starting their government relatively uncontested, backed by the legitimacy of the Soviets, which they now had full control over. Their first step was establishing the Council of the People's Commissars, or Sovnarkom. This would effectively come to be the cabinet of ministers or commissars to rule their new Soviet Union without the need for approval from, well, the Soviets, with definite hypocrisy. The Bolsheviks had no intention of any power sharing and, the initial government was formed solely from Bolsheviks, although in November some left SARS joined the government, but they didn't last past March of the next year. Another policy that the Bolsheviks put forward was giving more power to local Soviets, thereby appeasing peasants and workers. In the long term, however, they came to be dominated by party officials and induced into the government system. In practice, we get the picture that Lenin quickly worked to establish what became a one-party state, where the governing party became indiscernible from the government itself. Perhaps the most vitriolic example of this is the clamping down on the Constituent Assembly. We will come to this later in greater detail, but this came to be seen as a symbol for Bolshevik rule. No compromise, no power sharing, just the state and the party. Undoubtedly, Lenin was successful in meeting his aims. His system defied Seretili in lasting not three weeks, but just over 74 years. The Bolsheviks were thence capable of ruling by these decrees, which went largely unopposed. This meant bureaucracy was quick, and they always got what they wanted, but least in theory. Perhaps the most striking example of the successes of this government was its exportation around the world. One-party states have been successful at holding power across the world, from China to Nazi Germany and Cuba to modern-day Russia. This is a very interesting legacy of the October Revolution, and one that highlights its success. The second problem that Lenin and the Bolsheviks faced in their consolidation of power 
was opposition. The fact is that opposition was rife in their contemporary Russia. The war had caused an unstable politics, which had borne a myriad of groups. Monarchists, counter-revolutionaries, communist liberals, fascists. Think of an ideology, and there was a group to represent it in Russia in 1917, and importantly, a group that would fight tooth and nail for the cause. The Bolsheviks were also uncompromising as a result of their universalist nature of their ideology. When opposition existed, it had to be snuffed out, even if doing so would cause more problems to inflate. Finally, the revolution in October was contained to Petrograd. Provisional government loyal forces were still at large across Russia. Quickly, however, these were dealt with by the Soviet Red Army. The area around Petrograd was consolidated by the end of October, and Moscow came under Bolshevik control on the 2nd of November 1917. It is largely true that the Bolsheviks had suppressed the provisional government loyal forces by late November, but they had little authority across Russia as a whole, which was in a seemingly perpetual state of turmoil. Now, back to the uncompromising nature of the Bolsheviks. In this regard, they acted quickly to suppress opposition of all kinds. Just the day after the revolution had been successful in Petrograd, the Bolsheviks began censoring opposition press. However, hostility still persisted. Hearing that the Bolsheviks weren't going into a, in, to enter a power-sharing government, the Railway Men's Union threatened a general strike on the 28th of October to force the Bolsheviks' hand. Furthermore, we need to assess the opposition within the Bolsheviks. Throughout this podcast, I have referred to the Bolsheviks as a collective entity, but this is slightly inaccurate. The fact is that the Bolsheviks featured many of different beliefs. This bore dangerous fruit in November, as Kamenev, Zinoviev and three others from the Bolshevik Central Committee simultaneously resigned as a result of Lenin's perhaps pyrrhic opposition to power sharing. Both the split within the Bolsheviks and the threat of strike led to the induction of SRs into the government, but the Bolsheviks remained in the majority. The deserters, Zinoviev, Kamenev and the others, were all quickly readmitted into the party. Lenin quickly realised that he would need a centralised and roughly efficient method of controlling Russia. This came in a two-pronged strategy. The first prong was the Cheka. The Cheka was set up on the 7th of December 1917, led by Felix Zhivinsky. Its function was to wipe out opposition by terror, stir up class warfare and usher in uncontested Soviet control. This began with an attack on the cadets, liberals who had initially come into power in the first revolution in 1917. The legal system was abolished and replaced with what was often referred to as revolutionary justice. We can see this being carried out when the cadet party was declared illegal, leaders were arrested and two members were reportedly beaten to death. The newspapers, controlled by the Bolsheviks, began whipping up resentment towards bourgeoisies, members of the upper middle classes who were declared enemies of the people. Quickly, people across Russia were branded as bourgeoisie and class warfare was openly encouraged. The infamous Red Terror would start in mid-1918, and by 1919, an estimated 300,000 would be dead as a result of the Cheka. Remember the two-pronged approach? Well, here's the second prong. The Bolsheviks pursued a populist approach, at least initially, in an attempt to appease the workers and the peasants. This is part of the motive between the alliance with the left SRs in November. This is part of the motive between the alliance with the left SRs in November 1917, as the SRs had huge support from the peasants. The government also set about handing out very popular decrees from the get-go, with their first two decrees being the decree on peace and the decree on land. These both fell into their successful campaigning mantra, peace, bread and land. The government basically promised the peasants would get a nice chunk of land and the war would be stopped ASAP. Other popular decrees included the nationalisation of the banks in mid-December and the cancelling of foreign debts on the 28th of January 1918. It is difficult to discern what the successes of the Bolshevik suppression of the opposition were. This is because Russia was destined for civil war at this point. Nothing could have stopped it purely as a result of the political instability that the war had caused. 
However, we can see that class warfare was, rather worryingly, welcomed by many. This is in part evidenced by the increasing use of comrades, and the violence directed towards those who have been suspected of being bourgeoisie. Quite quickly, the only class that sourced any sort of benefit were those who worked in the party and the state. It is also true that Lenin was successful in his efforts to stop a coalition government to form. Now, on to the third problem. Linking to opposition, but distinctly separate, is the fact that the Bolsheviks just weren't that popular. In the Constituent Assembly elections on the 12th of November 1917, the Bolsheviks took home less than a quarter of the share of the vote. This wouldn't do for Lenin. When it came to the Constituent Assembly opening on the 5th of January 1918, it only lasted one day before being shut down by the Bolsheviks, along with a rain of bullets for the protesters outside. They cited a commonly held Russian belief that the democracy of the Constituent Assembly wasn't really democracy. Democracy was when everyone agreed. Take of that what you will. Ultimately, as a result of the Bolshevik suppression of opposition and the Constituent Assembly, Lenin was successful in his efforts to stop a coalition government to form. The fourth problem comes from the previously mentioned land reform issue. One of the reasons that the Tsar and the provisional government fell was the inability to successfully deal with land reform. The Bolsheviks had gathered lots of support through the policy of giving land to the peasants from their former landowners and church lands. But they had to be careful. Many peasants were fighting in a war that, until March, was still raging on. To give the peasants rights to their land would give peasant soldiers a huge motive to pack up and go home. Also, once they got home, they'd best be pleased by what they'd been given, otherwise they'd be sure to use their weapons from the war. In a series of acts from October 1917 to February 1918, the Sovnarkom effectively abolished private ownership, gave away church lands, and gave approval for militarised presence to overthrow local landlords. This had huge impacts on the SRs, whose support was largely based on the reforms that the Bolsheviks had just done. As a result, their numbers collapsed. In the long term, the land reforms would lead to much conflict, as, combined with the NEP, the Soviet New Economic Policy for Post-Civil War Recovery, it would lead to the development of wealthy peasants who would meet a terrible fate in collectivisation. However, it is undoubtedly true that the land decrees were hugely successful in limiting unrest amongst the peasantry in the early stage of the Bolshevik power. The fifth problem is that age-old issue of money, and in particular, industry. The economy of the Soviet Union was on its knees, even before the Civil War. In 1918, industrial output sat at two-thirds of the 1914 levels. Grain was in short supply, compounded with the loss of Ukraine, which made up one-third of Russia's grain. The Bolsheviks were about 13 million tonnes shy of normal levels. Lenin chose, as he often did, to centralise industry into Vyshenka, which was set up in December 1917. This put all of the existing economic institutions under one roof. Immediately, steps were taken both to improve the economy and usher in the first steps towards communism. In mid-December 1917, the banks were nationalised, and on the 28th of January 1918, foreign debts were cancelled, and in February 1918, industry as a whole was nationalised. Simultaneously, and part of the programme to appease workers, workers were given control to supervise factory management on the 26th of November 1917. The success of these policies is limited as a result of World War I and the Civil War. However, one can say that the emergence of Vyshenko was an important step towards a centralised planned economy that was to come. One glaring failure does exist in the cancelling of foreign debts. In the long term, this was a terrible decision, as it limited any confidence of foreign investment in Russia. This would plague the Soviet Union and lead to the low growth that spawned drastic measures such as those in the 1930s. The sixth and final problem was something which has overshadowed this entire podcast, the war. Russia had been at war with the Central Powers since summer 1914, and the conflict had been a disaster. The Bolsheviks had promised peace since April if they got into power, 
Now they were, it was something that they had to do. Problems are compounded by the ideological disposition of many communists who saw this war of workers against workers as fundamentally corrupting. Some Bolsheviks really thought worldwide revolution was round the corner and a peace deal was key along this process. But after four years of gruelling conflict, this was no mean feat. There was a great international pressure exerted on Russia from France, the US and Britain to stay in the war. Furthermore, a peace deal was likely going to be both humiliating and unfair at best. As previously mentioned, the decree on peace was one of the first things the new Bolshevik government passed. This was as much a domestic vindication of a policy that had been planned for months as it was an international cry for peace throughout Europe. It can't be ignored that Russia would have gained substantially from a universal peace there and then. On the 19th of November, Bolshevik and German ambassadors first met to discuss peace proposals and, in December, an initial armistice was signed. Sounds hunky-dory right? Well, not for long. The terms of the peace was put forward to Bolshevik Congress on the 8th of January and they were quickly rejected. More than half of the Bolsheviks advocated the reigniting of the war with revolutionary aims. Only a quarter supported Lenin's treaty and his overall policy of peace at any price. There was an impasse, but fortunately, or unfortunately, Trotsky came up with an idea. His genius plan was neither war nor peace. This was eventually accepted by the Bolshevik Central Committee three days later, even despite Stalin saying Comrade Trotsky's position is no position at all. Sadly for the Bolsheviks, it was rubbish. On the 18th of February 1918, German pr- troops just started advancing into Russian territory. By the time the Bolsheviks had realised their mistake, German troops had advanced a further 150 miles into Russian territory. The Germans then put forward harsher terms of peace, which, after further wrangling within the Bolsheviks, including threats of resignation from Lenin and Trotsky, was accepted, and the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was signed on the 3rd of March 1918. In the treaty, Russia lost one-sixth of its population, one-third of its grain, and 74% of its iron and coal access. Poland and the Baltic states were to be absorbed into the German sphere of influence. Ukraine, Finland and Georgia were to become independent. Truly disastrous for the Bolshevik regime. The peace treaty had vast impacts for domestic politics also. The left SRs, who had been in government since November 1917, suddenly resigned en masse. Tension continued between the SRs and the Bolsheviks. In the summer of 1918, the SRs assassinated the German ambassador in order to restart conflict. After this failed, the SRs captured the head of the Cheka, Felix Shavinsky, and began an uprising in Yaroslav, which was brutally repressed. If we trace these events further forward, we start to see this blend into civil war. Thus, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk and the Russian policy on the war was a massive failure. Not only did Russia sink in size, both physically and economically, but the treaty also led to further political instability, and this was worsened by bizarre decisions like that of neither war nor peace. Any semblance of a worldwide revolution fell away rapidly, and by the summer of 1918, Russia was politically isolated and on the verge of a civil war in which its former allies would intervene against the Bolshevik government. That concludes our journey through the Bolshevik consolidation of power. The government faced six main problems. Getting started, opposition, unpopularity, land reform, the dire economy, and the war. Ultimately, it is hard to fault the Bolsheviks on the first five problems, as they contributed to the regime staying in power, at least in the short term. However, when it comes to the war, the Bolshevik command seemed to go crazy, with a mixture of panic, arrogance, and the revolutionary fervour. Overall, the best indicator of the successes of the Bolshevik consolidation come in the fact that the regime greatly surpassed all expectations, of which brings me back to Seretili. I think he would have been shocked to find out he wouldn't even outlive the regime he predicted would last 21 days, despite living up until 1959. 
thank you for making it to the end of the third podcast in this series. That was a bit of a long one. I'm sorry for that. But it is an important part of history, and it helps that I also find this bit quite interesting. I'm off to walk my dog, and I genuinely hope you have an absolutely splendid rest of your day. Thank you.